you know, it's hard to remember now that so much of the advertising that we see uh, has been custom tailored for us based on our, our email and our web browsing preferences. But as many of us can remember, the, the day was when the, the ad that you saw was the same ad that everybody else saw. And it, it, it could create kind, kind of quite a stir, quite, quite, quite a buzz. Particularly if you, like me, were, were a kid, you know, growing up in the 70s. I, do you remember Ginsu Knives? Does anybody remember Ginsu Knives? I remember Ginsu Knives. I remember when Ginsu Knives hit the airwaves. And I mean, almost, and sorry, for those of you that don't know what Ginsu Knives are, they were these amazing knives. You know, that like never got dull. And, and if you had these knives, you would be able to just like cut anything perfectly and your food would look amazing and be amazing. I mean, it was just extraordinary. And, and Ginsu knives dominated the afternoon airwaves, you know, in my local town in Charleston, South Carolina. And, and I remember when it hit because like practically the next day at school, we're all doing Ginsu knife moves, you know, we're chopping and, and, and Ginsu becomes just part of the vocabulary of our lives as, as elementary school students and as, and as middle school students. We knew these were cool and you could do cool stuff with it and you did not want to be stabbed by a Ginsu knife because there was no way you were going to survive. And we knew all of this, even though no one we knew had them. No one had a Ginsu knife. Now, and it wasn't just knives. Thinking about afternoon advertising, you know, I mean, it was, it was sandwich makers and vegematics and juicers. And you know that the same companies that, that made these things, Ronco and KTEL, they also did albums. And so you would move from the ad about, about the, the vegematic to, to the ad about the, you know, this latest cool album that's come out, this compilation album that was going to turn your house into a dance party. Now it's, it's, it's thanks to, to those companies in particular, and I want to give just a particular shout out to Ronco and KTEL. It's thanks to those two companies that my generation learned its lesson on truth in advertising. You know, because eventually, as kids do, we all convinced our parents to buy one of those albums or to buy one of those gadgets for 1999. Or 10.99 or 9.99, and it would come, and we would wrap it, and we would put it on the turntable. Yes, there were turntables back then. Or, 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 or we would take it into the kitchen, and and we'd use it, and 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 we had this terrible discovery, right? This discovery that it didn't work, like it did on TV. The the, the tomatoes still got kind of smashed as you cut them. And it didn't, that album just didn't turn my house into a dance party. That, the album that I plunked down money for, that I convinced my mom to plunk down money for, was Convoy. You know, I, if y'all can remember back to the 70s, all the trucker songs, you know, the CB radio songs. And I just thought, man, we get this album, this is going to be so cool. It, it wasn't. Now, I don't, I don't know if those companies ever got in trouble with the FTC. For making false claims in advertising. But it only took me once. Which was once more than my mom wanted. 
but it only took me once to learn my lesson. Now, it's one thing to lose $9.99 on a bad album. How do we evaluate the claims? How do we consider the risk we're going to take when it comes to things far more important than an album or a sandwich maker or a juicer? How do we evaluate claims about God? How do we know when the person that's talking about God is actually making false claims? You see, people who claim to be Christians, people like many of us in this room, we are the main spokesmen and women for God in this world. And, you know, we, and I don't mean you in particular, I just mean Christians in general. I mean, we are out there on a lot of different messages about who God is, about what he's like, about what it means to be a Christian. And a lot of those messages actually conflict with each other. Some of those messages even contradict each other. So, so how does anyone sort out the false claims from the true? More important, or equally important, if you are a Christian, if you are one of those spokespeople for God, how can you be sure that you are a reliable spokesperson and not an imposter, not someone who's selling the equivalent of Gensu knives? Well, to answer that question, we turn to the book of 1 John. 1 John is a letter that was written toward the end of the first century by the Apostle John. And his whole purpose, as we saw a couple of weeks ago when we looked at the first few verses, his whole purpose was to make clear what authentic Christianity is and who authentic Christians really are. And he needed to do this in the face of false teachers who were making false claims. And it is those false claims that we come to this morning. If you'd look at 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, if you're using one of the Bibles that we've provided, that's found on page 1898. 1898, 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. We're going to look at the first, we're going to look at um, verses 5 through 10, right down to the end of the first chapter. And you'll be helped just by leaving your Bible open because we're going to refer to it again and again. So 1 John chapter 1, beginning with verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word has no place in our lives. In these few verses, John gives us three tests to, to weed out the, the authentic Christian who really knows God from, from the imposter. They're, they're all negative tests, and we're, we're going to walk through each one of them in just a minute, but but if I were going to try to summarize all three tests together and state it positively rather than negatively, it would go like this. I think what, what these five verses are really getting at. Authentic fellowship with God is proved by leaving the darkness of sin and living in the light of Christ. 
Authentic fellowship with God is proved by leaving the darkness of sin and walking, living in the light of Christ. That, however, is not the way John puts it. He gives us these three negative tests, these these three false claims, and he debunks them. And that's how we're going to proceed. So false claim number one, false claim number one, I'm a Christian because I pray to prayer. I'm a Christian because I pray to prayer. Look at verse five again. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light in him. There is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son purifies us from all sins. Now, I just read those verses. And, and, and as you can immediately tell, John doesn't say anything about a prayer. What he says is that you're not in fellowship with God just because you say you are in fellowship with God. That's what he says. You're not in fellowship with God just because you say you are. Now, what's a Christian? A Christian is someone who's in fellowship with God. And so I found myself, as I tried to think about this particular, this first false claim, thinking about, you know, our culture here in America. And why is it that most American Christians think that they're Christians? Why is it that most American Christians claim to be Christians? Well, for some of them, it's, it's because they were born into a Christian family and, 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 you know, they're Christian because they're not something else. You know, I wasn't born into a Muslim family. But I, I think for many, maybe for most of us, maybe for almost all of us here this morning who claim to be Christians, what we're tempted to do, what many of us do, is, is we look back and we think, well, I'm a Christian because I, I, I prayed the sinner's prayer. I'm a Christian because I, I raised my hand at an invitation. I'm a Christian because, I mean, I, I, I signed that card. And on that basis alone, many, many people are sure that they are Christians, that they are in fellowship with God. What's interesting here, though, is John actually doesn't start with us and our claims. He starts with God. He starts with who this God is. And he says, God is light. It does not mean that photons are divine, right? The sentence doesn't work backwards. Light is not God, right? We can't say light is God. But what he says is God is light. And what that means is that God reveals himself as the truth. And that truth has an ethical or, or, or a moral force to it. John says that he, that he heard this message from him, that is, from Jesus, who is referring to just a few verses before. And I think he has in mind things that Jesus said when he says this, that we heard this message from him, that God is light. I, th- I think he's remembering Jesus who said, I am the light of the world. What did Jesus mean by that? He meant, I'm the one who reveals the truth about God and the way into a relationship with God. But Jesus didn't just say, I'm the one who reveals the truth about God. Jesus said more than that. He also said light has come into the world, but men loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. What does that mean? It means the light, the the, the truth that reveals God, also reveals something about us. It reveals our moral wickedness and that we prefer the darkness to the light that is God. Truth, you see, has a moral content. 
It's not just a philosophy. God, God isn't a philosophy. God's not an idea. God, God is a, a person who is good. A person who is holy. And this is who Jesus revealed God to be. That God is light. A, a person who makes a moral claim on our lives. Now, now we saw two weeks ago that, that fellowship with God means possessing something in common with God. It, it means sharing in God's life. It means having God's life. Now, now what would it look like then to, to participate in God's life, to, to share in the, in the life of God if God is light? Well, according to, to John, it sure doesn't look like walking in darkness. It doesn't look like living in darkness. Now, at that very moment, a lot of us become really nervous, right? So let, let me be very clear. John is not saying that an authentic Christian, someone who's in fellowship with the God of light, never sins. God is, John is not saying that. What he's saying is that if the general tenor of your life, if, if your lifestyle, if the overall character of your life is darkness, Sin, error, ungodliness. Well, then you are not a Christian. And, and if you claim you are, John says, you're a liar. He, and it's really hard to get around this, right? If we claim to have fellowship with him, we claim to be a Christian, Yet walk in the darkness. The general character of our life is darkness. We lie. We are liars. An, an imposter making a false claim. Well, what then does an authentic Christian look like? Uh, an authentic Christian who's, who's in fellowship with God. Well, John tells us there in verse 7, if we walk in the light as he is in the light. Someone, someone whose life is characterized by light is the person who's in fellowship with the God who is light. Now, John points to two things in verse 7. Uh, first, he points out that, that we have fellowship with one another there in verse 7. This, this really introduces what is going to be a major theme for John throughout his letter. To have fellowship with God is to have fellowship with God's people. To love God is to love his people. We cannot have God without having each other. I know some of us would actually like to have God without having each other. Because we like God and each other, well, that's hard, right? We're going to explore this a lot over the course of the spring. Because John really develops this idea. You can't have God without also having God's people. It's a package deal. But, but second, he goes on and he says, we are purified by the blood of Jesus Christ. The blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus' death for us makes us acceptable to God so that he can actually pour his life into us. Jeff referred to this earlier. He talked about, you know, the temple being the place where God was in the, in the old covenant. But now we are the place where God is. 
But for that to happen, God is holy. God is light. We have to be clean. I mean, imagine, as it were, let's, let's say you've, you've got a, a really nice glass water pitcher and your kids sneak it out of the kitchen into the backyard uh, on a rainy day to make mud pies, you know, to use it to like mix the mud and the water to make mud pies. You're not going to use that glass pitcher for your dinner party that evening, right? Unless first you clean it. You're going to have to make that pitcher clean. And only then are you going to pour water in to serve your guests. It's the same idea here. We need to be made clean if God's going to pour his life into us. And that is exactly what Christ's death on the cross does for all who put their faith in him. It makes us clean. And he keeps us clean so that we are an acceptable vessel for the life of God, his spirit, to take up residence in us. John Stott, looking at at this verse, remarked, religion without morality is an illusion because sin is always a barrier to fellowship with God. James makes this point, right? Faith. Without works, words of faith, without a life of faith, is dead. Paul asks the question, what what fellowship can light have with darkness? And he asks it in such a way that he lets everybody know. The answer is, well, well, none. Light and dark don't have fellowship. Friends, true fellowship with God is fellowship in the light of God's life. And and, and when Christ saves someone, this is what he does. He cleanses us. He purifies us so that we are an acceptable vessel, a pitcher for God's life to be poured in. Now, Now, we need to be really clear here. Morality does not get us into fellowship with God. It's not that we clean ourselves up. It's it's not that we try to be really good and now God decides to take up residence in our life. No, no. Morality doesn't get us into fellowship with God. But if we are in fellowship with God, if Christ has made us clean, then it will be evident by the character of our lives. Christianity that is just words is a lie. There's no way to get around it. Christianity that is just words. I prayed a prayer. is a lie. Christianity that does not show itself in a changed life. Christianity that does not evidence itself in, in a life that looks more and more like Christ's life. It's, it's, it's a false claim. It's, it's bogus Christianity. It is not the real thing. So for you who are here today, and I put myself in this category, who claim to be a Christian, this points for us, right? Could someone tell that you are in fellowship with God by your life, by the the overall and general character and tenor of your life? Not perfection. I, I can't say this enough. I'm not asking 
do, do, have you stopped sinning? Of course I'm not going to ask that question. That'd be a stupid question to ask because of course you haven't stopped sinning. Jesus hasn't come back yet. No, no I'm asking about the, the overall character of your life. Not perfection, but a quality of your life that, that looks like light instead of looking like darkness. This is a question we've got to ask ourselves as Christians. What, what would our life convict us of? What, if, if I was called up, not before the Federal Trade Commission, but, you know, for the Federal Truth Commission, what, would my life convict me of being a Christian? Or would it convict me of false advertising? Don't put your confidence, brother, sister, don't put your confidence in something that you did 10 or 20 or 40 years ago. It's not that that initial step of praying and giving your life to Christ is not significant. It was. It's hugely significant. But that's not where we find our confidence. And, and that means, actually, we need to stop teaching our children that all they have to do is say a prayer and then they're good. They've got their ticket to heaven and they can get on with life. We need to not teach that in our children's ministry. We need to not teach that in our homes. We want to teach that Jesus Christ not only forgives sinners when they pray that prayer, but Jesus Christ cleanses sinners. He changes them. So look at your life today. If you are not Walking in the light today. If your life is not characterized by light. Then it doesn't matter that, that you've been calling yourself a Christian for 10 years or 20 years or 30 years. Forget it. Start today. Right. Today is the day to repent of your sins. Today is the day to come into the light. And to walk with Christ in that light. Repent. Trust in Christ. Know what it means to be made clean. There is no embarrassment, right? There's no embarrassment here in saying, you know, I thought I was a Christian. I've been going to church for 30 years, but I think all I did was just mouth some words. And now I know, actually, it, it wasn't real. There is no shame in today saying, right, right now, I'm coming to Christ. Right now, I want to be cleansed and purified by his blood. Now, as a church, we need to realize that this, this advertising, advertising is not a solo activity. Right? John, John said that, that, that we're brought into fellowship with one another. We show, we advertise to the world that we are walking in the light by doing it together. One holy person is unremarkable. Nobody cares about a single holy person. They must be just super disciplined. Or they've got this thing about them. You know, who knows? But a whole community of people, a whole community of people who together are walking in the light, and we're walking together in the light not because we're all into the same music or we're all the same age, or we're all from the same socio-demographic group, 
but we're walking in the light together because what we have in common is God in Jesus Christ, that is remarkable. That's what we want to be. Now, so when you hear me talk about church membership, please understand that's what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about coming into the pompous self-righteous club. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a commitment to one another to be this kind of advertising to the world as we live in the light together. False claim number one, I'm a Christian because I said a prayer. False claim number two, I'm in fellowship with God because I'm a good person. I'm in fellowship with God because I'm a good person. Look at verse eight. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. You know, if the first false claim was really dealing with the hypocrite. This false claim is dealing with what I might call the moralist. You know, the person who says that God loves me because I'm, I'm a good person and God loves good people. And the way that seems to play its, itself out in, in our culture today is, is a general and widespread belief that people, human beings, are fundamentally good. You know, just, just at bottom, we are fundamentally good. You're getting ahead of me, Robert. <laughs> now, what, so what happens when we begin to, to buy into that idea that the people are fundamentally good? Well, lots of things happen, but one of the things that happens is the category of sin, the category of moral reprehensibility before God just becomes obsolete. It goes away. People in this view are not broken in their, in their very nature. They are simply victims. They're victims of poverty. They're victims of, of ignorance. They're victims of, of violence. And, and, and so, and so the, the way this story plays itself out is if we could just improve the circumstances of life in our cities, in our schools, in, in our homes, well, 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 then what would happen is that what looks like sin now would actually just gradually go away. Because it turns out it wasn't sin at all. It was just the byproduct of injustice, the byproduct of deprivation. Friends, this is the promise behind progressive politics. And I'm not making a political statement here, but this is the promise behind progressive politics. This is the promise behind socialism, actually. I lived in England for four years, and my British friends would groan if I referred to them as a socialist state because they look over at Europe and see it even more advanced. But I mean, but this, but this is the promise that, you know, if government can just get its act together and marshal enough resources to improve our circumstances enough as a society, the problems will go away. Now, let me just be really clear. Government should get its act together and government should marshal resources and government should address the problems that our society faces. It's the conclusion that I'm challenging. 
that all the problems will go away if it just does that. You know, this is, I think, the assumption of most of my neighbors in my neighborhood. I'm, it's, it's, I think, the assumption of almost all of my non-Christian friends. I, I think this is also why, why universalism, you know, the idea that everybody's going to go to heaven if there is one, has such huge curb appeal in our society. It's not that people think that, that no one's done anything bad. People know that other people do bad things. It's that they think that no one does anything that, that they're going to be held responsible for finally in, in an ultimate sense. Because all those bad things they did were just the byproduct of, a, of an unjust world of, of deprivation and violence. That's the way the thinking works. Now John's response to the hypocrite was to call him a liar. John's response to the moralist is to confront him as a self-deluded fool. He says, if this is what we claim, then we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Why is he confident that the truth isn't in this person? Well, quite simply because the nature of the truth is that it reveals the truth. Jesus Christ exposes things as they really are. Not as we'd like to imagine them to be. And so when he shines into our lives. We not only see God for who he is light. We begin to see ourselves for who we are. Who we really are. And that's sinners. Not just people who do bad things. But but people who, who, to, to use John's language here. People who actually possess sin. People whose very nature is corrupt. Which is why, despite all the good efforts of our government, the problems will not finally go away. Because the problems are not out there. At the end of the day, ultimately, the problems are in here. That, that's where they're rooted. That's where they reside. We possess sin. And the light... The light shows it for what it is. The light reveals. John Calvin said, It is certain that man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he's first looked upon God's face and then descends from contemplating him to scrutinize himself. For we always seem to ourselves righteous and upright and wise and holy unless by clear proofs we stand convinced of our own unrighteousness. And we are not thus convinced if we look merely to ourselves and not also to the Lord, who is the sole standard by which this judgment must be measured. Friends, you can't know yourself until you know who God is. Boy, when you walk into his light, when you see God for who he is, you cannot help but know yourself. And it's not a pretty picture. Friends, it's a terrible thing to deceive others. It is a terrible thing to claim to be what you know you are not. But at least the hypocrite knows he's a liar. That's what the hypocrite's got going for him. How much worse is it to deceive yourself about yourself? How much more pitiful? How much more terrible a place is that to be? 
Because if you don't recognize the truth about yourself, how can you change? How can you know that you need help? How can you know where to go for help? So if you're here this morning and, and, and you're not a Christian, maybe something to just try is, is, is to walk away from here today and, and not necessarily you know, pray that God would reveal himself, not necessarily pray that God would take away all your doubts, but pray that God would keep you from self-deception. Pray that God might show you yourself and then see what happens now in 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 contrast to this self-deception authentic fellowship with god john says is characterized not by a claim of goodness that we don't that we don't even possess sin no it's characterized by the confession that we are anything but good verse 9 if we confess our sins He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Authentic Christians are not people who confess their sins one day in one prayer and then walked away. Now, John says that they were actually characterized by confession. You might be able to translate verse 9 there as not just if we confess our sins, but, but if we confess and keep on confessing. If we adopt a lifestyle... A a posture of confession. And God's response to that lifestyle, to to that, that ongoing life of confession, God's response is extraordinary. It's it's not incremental. He doesn't say, okay, you've confessed those sins, so those are forgiven, but you forgot these three over here, and so I'm holding out on you. I'm waiting. And when you confess those, I'll forgive them. No, actually, John uses a very different verb form than the confession. Our our confession is to be ongoing. It's to be a posture of confession. But God's forgiveness and God's purification, John says, it's absolute. It's total. It's global. John says that God is faithful and just to forgive. Faithful because from the very beginning, this is what he's promised to do. He has promised his people that if we will turn to him, that if we will bring this this humble life of confession to him, he's not going to stand there and say, "Uh uh-uh, not good enough. No, he's going to forgive. He is faithful to his promises, faithful to his word. But it's more than that. He's just. He's not only staked his word and his reputation on this. He's actually bound himself by his own justice. For Jesus Christ has paid the debt for all who put their faith in him. He's paid the debt on the cross. Jesus Christ was not dying for his own sin. He had none on the cross. Jesus Christ was not just trying to demonstrate how much God loves us on the cross. Jesus Christ was paying my penalty. He was paying your penalty. If you put your faith in him and God will not demand payment twice. If our if our banks won't even do that. Why would God, right? God will not demand payment in full and receive it from Christ's account on the cross and then turn around and say, and you got to pay up too. Justice demands that we be forgiven because Christ has paid the debt. 
So where does that leave us then? Well, it leaves us as people who are living out a, a whole lifestyle of confessing ourselves to be sinners. It's not a once and done. But no, every day I get up again and I confess, Lord, I am a sinner and I am in need of your grace. I know myself daily to be one who needs to make this confession and to keep making it all day long. But I also know because of what God has done. that I am forgiven. That I am a saint. That I am holy in his sight. Sinner, constantly confessing my sin. Saint, clean and accepted in God's sight. That's who I am in Christ. Simultaneously, saint and sinner. That's an authentic Christian. Friends, here's the irony of the gospel. To admit that we're sinners, whoo, that seems risky, right? To admit fault, to admit guilt, opens you up to condemnation. Uh, that's, that's why when we walk into a courtroom, if we find ourselves unfortunate enough to find ourselves in a courtroom, you, you know, that the lawyer always says right away, kind of no matter what, no, you, you plead not guilty. You plead not guilty. Because once you've admitted, the game's up. Right? And that's kind of the way we live with God. We, we, don't, we don't want to admit It seems way too risky. But in fact, it's just the other way around. When we admit that we're sinners and we turn to God in faith, he doesn't say, yep, I knew it. I got you now. No, what he says is welcome home. Welcome home. Through Jesus Christ, he sets us free from condemnation. That's what it means to be forgiven. And through Jesus Christ and his blood shed on the cross, he removes our defilement, our stain, our dirt, the, the barrier that keeps us from being in relationship with him. That's purification. There is no fake it till you make it with God. Mm-mm. There's no fake it till you make it. There is just radical acceptance on his part in response to radical confession on our part because of radical sacrifice. On Jesus Christ's part. And in that transaction, there is no room for pride. There's no room for claiming goodness. Because frankly, there's no need for it. He already knows. He already knows you down to your deepest core. The question is, do you? False claim number two. I'm in fellowship with God because I'm a good person. False claim number three. I'm in fellowship with God because I haven't done anything all that bad. I'm in fellowship with God because I haven't done anything all that bad. Verse 10. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar. And his word has no place in our lives. John has moved from the moralist who assumes his goodness to to the relativist. I don't mean a philosophical relativist. I I, I mean the relativist who's not making any claims about his nature. But he's just pretty sure that in the grand scheme of things, he hasn't done anything all that bad, anything worthy of eternal condemnation. It's not a claim to perfection. This is a claim to relative innocence. The category of sin is admitted here. It was denied in the second false claim. In this, in this claim, 
sin is, is, is real, sure. We just don't think we've committed any. At least not any that are going to leave us in trouble at the end. Now, I know a lot of people like this, and maybe, maybe this is you. Perhaps this is the way you think about yourself. You know you're not perfect, right? So let's just be really clear. I'm not talking about the prideful person. You know you're not perfect. You know you've made mistakes, and you continue to make them. You know that you have not lived up to your potential. But it's not like you've committed murder. It's not like you've committed adultery. You haven't robbed anybody, at least not in a way that would send you to jail. Relatively speaking, you know, on balance, you're a good person. And here's what's tough about this. Here's what makes this false claim kind of difficult for us. Relatively speaking, you are. Relatively speaking, if you're sitting here this morning, you are a good person. The problem is we're not talking about fellowship with God who, you know, relatively speaking, on average, is light. We're talking about fellowship with God who is light, absolutely, full stop, period, no qualifications. John called the first imposter a liar. He called the second imposter self-deceived. But I think this is perhaps the worst kind of imposter. This is the worst of false claims. Because to make this claim, we have to call God a liar. God's word says that there is no one righteous, not even one. And we say, not true. Not true. I haven't murdered. I haven't committed adultery. God, you are wrong to lump me in with the Hitlers and Stalins of this world. God, you are, you are being too hard. You are a too judgmental God if that's the way it works. And so we reduce his holiness. We magnify our virtue. We minimize our faults. But friends, according to John, according to Jesus, God is not the liar. We are. We say we have committed adultery, but Jesus comes along and says that even if we have looked at another person lustfully, we are guilty. We, we pride ourselves that we've never committed murder, but Jesus says if you have been angry with someone else, you are guilty. You see, if God is light, full stop, then our sin runs deeper than we'd like to admit. And it gets worse. We were made by the God who is light to worship him, to take all that we are and all that we have and to reflect it back to him who is light, which means that all of the really good things that you did this week, and I mean the really good things, the good deeds, the kind words, the charitable thoughts, if those good deeds were not offered fundamentally as worship to God, if they were in any way used to bring glory to yourself, then according to scripture, even your good deeds are like filthy rags before God who is light. Friends, if we deny the truth of God's word against us, John says his word has no place in our lives. 
Because this is where we have to begin. Right here. We have to first recognize that God is our adversary and his word is against us first before ever God can become our savior and his word be a message of life for us. You cannot be a Christian unless you feel your need for a savior. And you won't feel your need for a savior unless you are convinced that you have sinned and that your conduct, every bit of it, is worthy of his condemnation and his judgment. Friends, here's the mark of an authentic Christian, someone who is in fellowship with the God of light. They're a person whose word, the the God's word, his his message of life has come to us and, and it now dwells in us and it is welling up into eternal life. But when that word comes, when we possess it, when it takes possession of us and takes up residence in us, it humbles us. So that we recognize who we really are. And we agree with God's word against us. And it drives us back to him. So that that same word becomes a word of life to us. Friends, this is how we know that we're Christians. This is how we weed out false claims from true. Not that we pray to prayer. Not that we're good. Not that we haven't done really bad things but that we agree with God's word about our nature and our actions. And because of that word, we've abandoned our small and petty self-justifications. And because of that word, we have run to him and put our faith in the purifying and forgiving blood of Jesus Christ. And now because of that blood, walk in fellowship with the God who is life. This is what I long for Henson Baptist Church. That we would be people who as we go through our daily lives and as we come together in our corporate life, it is evident to all that these are people who are in fellowship with God. They're not self-righteous people. They're not smarty pants know-it-all people. They're not traditional people. They are people who are walking in the light. And because of that, others want to come and walk in the light with us. That's my prayer. For you, for me, for us. God can do it. Let's ask him to. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, forgive us for thinking too little of you. Forgive us for for minimizing your greatness, your light, and magnifying our own paltry light. Lord, help us to see ourselves as we really are and help us to see Jesus for who he really is. And allow us together to walk in that light, to call others to join us. Father, we pray all of this in Christ's name.
Amen.